Please be seated. And uh, please turn in your copy of God's Holy Word to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, we will consider verses 23 through 27 this afternoon as we continue our exposition of the book. Uh, We close at the end of this chapter this extended discourse that the Apostle has been having on Psalm 110 verse 4, where Jesus Christ, uh, God swears to, to the Son of God that he will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek and makes this oath. And so we come to the conclusion there uh, today. Um, What we will do, just to set your expectations for upcoming weeks, we will close this chapter and then be away from Hebrews for a little while. Uh, We will have communion services taking up the next two afternoons in the the Lord's Day. And then after that, we'll return to the family series for some time. But this seems like a good stopping point in this series, and we will take up Hebrews again uh, when we get a chance to get back to it. All right, the other thing to note is that this will be a fairly didactic sermon. There are a lot of wonderful truths to be meditated on here. Uh, I will begin the reading in verse 20, even though we will uh, pick up the the text uh, preaching-wise in verse 23. Let's hear now the word of God, Hebrews 7, verse 20. These are the very words of God, holy, inspired, and infallible. Let us receive them that way. And inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost, them uh, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins, And then for the peoples, for this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you have set the glory of Jesus Christ and his perfection before us in this scripture. And now as we hear the scripture preached, we pray, Father, that you would enable your servant to preach faithfully, preach uh, by the Spirit's help, that the very, very Spirit that inspired these glorious words, which can be hard to understand, would open our hearts and open our minds to receive Christ out of them, that Jesus Christ would increase among all of your dear people here, And that if any here do not know Jesus Christ and have never heard of their need of a perfect intercessor before God, that this would be the day of salvation for them. To those ends, Father, we pray that the preaching of the word would have its effect and that in the preaching of the word, you would help us to behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And we ask this for the glory and honor of Jesus and in his name. Amen. Well, recently... 
I was able to do some open air preaching and witnessing in Alabama. And uh, one of the, the souls I encountered was a very troubled soul. Uh, you could see it in his eyes. And, and as I went up to him and I opened the scripture to him uh, and I explained the nature of Christ's sacrificial work uh, to atone for the sins of his people to the uttermost, this man, and sometimes you forget these things as you've known the Lord for some time and you know the hope of the gospel, he continued to assert to me that he himself must in some way do something to merit salvation, that he must add something, he must do some atoning work. It seemed completely outrageous to him that, in, that all of salvation is of the Lord. And as I marveled on the hardness of the heart that refuses to say that salvation is entirely of the Lord, uh, I could only say, right, because I remember this myself before conversion, man wants to feel that he has contributed, he has done something that would set him apart from everyone else to say, oh God, I have done something good for me to be saved. But friend, if that is you today, if any part of your salvation was reliant on you, even the most smallest microscopic bit, you would be utterly lost. Adam found that out in the garden, didn't he? That even without being born with a sin nature as we are, as Psalm 51 shows us, he was susceptible to falling very quickly, almost immediately, He is made, God gives him a command, the tempter comes, and he falls so soon. And so, to those of us who know and have grappled with our sin and have seen that it is futile to be utterly righteous in the sight of God, it cheers our hearts to find in this text the truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ saves to the uttermost, to the uttermost. He saves completely. He saves entirely. Not a single bit of our salvation is left up to us. And today, we consider that in his office as high priest, as a perfect high priest, he is able to save to the uttermost because he ever lives to intercede for us. There isn't a moment that goes by that before the throne of God, there is an interceder, uh, somebody who intercedes for the people of God, for you who believe. You are not left to your own before God. Day and night, night and day, there is an advocate, a perfect advocate, and he performs this in his office as high priest. And that's what our text has to teach us. So our theme is simply this, that Christ, as our perfect high priest, saves but he saves to the uttermost. We'll consider Christ's perfection as our priest under two heads. First is a perfect sacrifice, that is what Christ is. And second, he is a perfect intercessor. So first, a perfect sacrifice. Now verse 26 says of Jesus that such an high priest became us. What that means, boys and girls, is um, such an high priest is the one we need. That's what that means. It means such a high priest is the one that we need. And what we see throughout this epistle 
is that Jesus Christ and his perfection, his singular and unique ability to save by way of both his person and his office, what he is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do, all of it, every bit of it, is necessary for our salvation. Take any part, take any portion of the person or work of Jesus Christ away, and we cannot be saved. Salvation would be an impossibility. You take the smallest portion of what Christ is away from him, and you would be lost. And if you saw it this way, you would never look for another to save you. You would never look for another priest. You know, part of what this epistle is meant to do for us is to make us marvel at who Jesus is. Marvel at the perfection of Jesus and just how necessary this Savior was for our salvation. Every component of what Jesus is, what he is and what he has done, is necessary. And we would marvel, we ought to marvel at it if we would meditate on this text. And we certainly would never go back to the old Aaronic priesthood for the Old Testament ceremonial law as the Hebrews were tempted to do so. We would say instead, we need all that Jesus is and all that Jesus uh, does, and I must have all of Jesus to be saved. This is actually a fundamental point of Christian doctrine, that outside of Christ, there is no salvation because we need Christ and we need all of him. And what we need of Christ as our high priest is not just his atoning work, You know, we can be very reductionist in our understanding of what our Lord has done for us. We can simply look to the cross, and of course, we don't glory, uh, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we have to see that the cross by itself is not the end of his work. There is more that is necessary, and that might seem, that might seem blasphemous. But this is what the text says, because Christ didn't just leave us at the cross. He continues to apply the cross to us day by day. His blood, his atonement is applied to us constantly. And so, that we would not be reductionist in his work as our high priest, we can break this text into two portions that show us the work of Christ. In the first part, verses 23 to 25, you find that Jesus Christ is a perfect intercessor. And in the second part, verses 26 through 28, you will find that Jesus Christ is a perfect sacrifice. I'm going to reverse the order we'll consider these in uh, for the sake of the flow of the sermon. And so we will consider first, in this first heading, verses 26 through 28, where we find that Jesus Christ is our perfect sacrifice. And that's the substance of this heading, verses 26 through 28. Now, He is superior to the old high priests in two ways when it comes to sacrifice. First, he is a perfect priest in his person. His person is perfect. And the old high priests, as you might remember, boys and girls from your Bible, the Old Testament, they were not perfect men. Second, he offers up a perfect sacrifice, which is his perfect person. The old high priests offered animals constantly, But this high priest offers his perfect self. And both of these aspects are shown in our text. So you might consider first the perfection of his person. The the section of this text uh, introduces the moral perfection of Jesus Christ, who is the spotless, 
right? And and perfect Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Verse 26 contains a list of Christ's perfect characteristics. And we often remember these, and we often recite these, don't we? He is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. What a glorious thing. This is Jesus. This is our high priest. Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens. To consider each of his characteristics here is to know his perfection. The first characteristic here is that he is holy. And we have to be careful with this. The word used by the apostle does not signify separation of office, right? The old high priests were holy in a sense. They were separated to the work of the ministry by way of office. They were separate. Only the priests could do the work of the ministry. So they were called holy. Aaron and his sons were called holy unto the Lord in that way. The difference is their person was not holy. They were not morally pure themselves. This is the distinction and difference with Jesus. And in fact, the word here that is used in the Greek is different than the word that is used for someone who is separated, but instead speaks of the holy nature of the Lord. Jesus had a moral purity. He never committed evil. He never sinned. He never did a thing that was not righteous and holy and good. Made under the law of God, he kept the law of God to its utter perfection. And here is also where we can go wrong. It was not just an outward keeping of the law, but inwardly where it really mattered. Jesus was holy. Boys and girls, think of this because this is so hard for us to understand ourselves. He never once had a single solitary sinful thought. In every temptation, instead of sin enticing him, he was repulsed by it. This is true holiness. This is a holiness none of us know where sin is always abhorrent to us, where the temptation to sin is disgusting and vile. When the devil tempted him, he never once entertained sin because he is truly holy, and we call him impeccable for that. Second, we read that he is harmless. Uh, the word harmless in the Greek language, uh, it, 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 it's more than what you might think in the English translation. It conveys innocency. It's not like he never once murdered somebody, he never once did anything to hurt someone's feelings. He actually hurt a lot of people's feelings because he was holy. Uh, It means that he was without guile. The word actually conveys an active and not passive work. You know, Jesus is not harmless, as I've said, because he has never harmed a soul or body. Jesus is called harmless because he ever blessed men. He was ever blessing men. You might consider this then Christ's active obedience. He followed the law of God. When it came to the second table of the law, which this is in view of, he lived it out perfectly. He said, love thy neighbor as thyself. And that this summarized the second table of the law that pertains to our neighbor. And he, as love incarnated, always did that that which was most loving for his neighbor. He was harmless in that way. Think of it, boys and girls. You remember Jesus. He blessed those in need. He gave to those who hungered their food. He defended the innocent. He preached the gospel to the brokenhearted. And he did it all at a great personal cost. The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man hath uh, not where to lay his head. Matthew 8.20 And of course, his harmlessness, his active love, would ultimately lead him to Calvary's cross. 
showing that, yes, he was harmless. We read of him, and you know it in the Gospels, revile. He did not revile in turn, but blessed instead. This is the nature of our Lord. Now you think of him. How different was the tenor of his ministry compared to the old high priests? He is harmless. Third, he is undefiled, meaning he is free from the stain of original sin. There is no corruption whatsoever in our Lord Jesus. He's unlike us. Again, we have to see the discontinuity with us and him, even though he is a man. Uh, We say with the 51st Psalm, in sin did my mother conceive me. But he says, I was conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the virgin. The angel told Mary what? That holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Luke one thirty five, Utterly holy without corruption. No child has ever been born, even you boys and girls, other than Jesus, that that could be said. All the high priests that came in Aaron's order would have to say, in sin did my mother conceive me. That means all the other men in this world could never be what Jesus is. There is no other spotless lamb of God that can take away the sin of the world because every other man is filled with corruption, just as you and I are. But Jesus, he cannot even countenance temptation, as I've said. Uh, When the devil came after him, what did the Son of God say? The prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. John 14.30 There is nothing the devil can grab his hooks into like he can with us. We have corruptions all over the place, but not Jesus Christ. And I would just say, when you think of what our Savior said, is this not something to look forward to in the glorified state? Or you might say, there is no corruption anymore in me. If the devil were even around, which he won't be, he'll be in the lake of fire as we heard this morning. One day in heaven above, you will be able to say that I have a soul so pure that no sin can ever tempt me to stray from my God. That's a wonderful, blessed thing. That's the stuff heaven is made of. That aside, the Lord Jesus was undefiled by the taint of original sin. Fourth, he was separate from sinners meaning he was also undefiled by the taint of committed sin. He was made in every way like us, the Bible says, save for sin. Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 teaches that. He could never be called a sinner in truth, right? Of course, men tried to charge him with sin, but they never could. He was born without original sin and without corruption. He never could sin. Now, being separate from sinners, you must understand, does not convey, like the Pharisees thought they were separate from sinners, a kind of holier-than-thou attitude. No. Instead, in Luke 15.2, and we bless the Lord for this, we read, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. It wasn't a physical separation from sinners that was in view here. It is instead that he is morally separate from sinners. Every other man, woman, and child, including you and me, are called, rightfully so, sinners. But that appellation can never be applied to Jesus. Even though he was very man, having a true body and a reasonable soul, he could never be called a sinner. Now, on the cross, this is where we have to have distinctions, right? In the great exchange, God laid all of our sins on him, but they were not his sins, right? He was counted, in fact, the world's greatest sinner by God on the cross. But none of those sins were his. 
when he, the Lamb of God, had all of our sins imputed to him. They were charged against him by God, but he himself, he was never a sinner. Not once, never. His enemies could not say a word when he asked, which of you convicts me of sin? John eight forty six, And beloved, this is the high priest that we need to be offered up in our place before God so that he can say to God what? I am holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners because my people are not. And so, oh God, take me in their place. Take me, I who am holy and undefiled, take me and let me be their scapegoat, oh Father. And the Father could look on this perfect one, Jesus, and he could take him in your place, believer. What a wonderful thing it is to have Jesus, who is what we are not, so that the Lord could make he who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 What other hope could there be for we who are not like Jesus in ourselves? What other hope could there be for we who are, and you must admit that you are this, unholy, defiled, harmful, and sinners? Fifth and last, we read that Jesus was made higher than the heavens. Now this is Christ's exaltation. This is necessary because it is the divine stamp upon him that vindicates his misery, uh, ministry. His resurrection uh, by the dead where he was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, Romans 1.4. And then his ascension and exaltation of his humanity to the right hand of God. Ephesians 1, 20 through 21. You can look that up tonight. What does all of that prove? What does it prove when we say that he was made higher than the heavens? It proves to you, child of God, that his work of expiation, his work of paying for your sins is finished. And God has accepted him. Just as he declared on the cross, all of it is paid in full. What a high priest of old could say that. And then, whatever high priest of old could have a ministry in the heavens, only Jesus does and could. Such is the high priest that is necessary for us. Verse 27 says of Jesus, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. And so here we see the uniqueness of our great high priest, that he not only offers up sacrifices, he offers up himself. No high priest could ever do this. Because of his moral purity, Jesus Christ, also we read in verse 27, never ever had to offer up a sacrifice for himself. And because of his purity, he could be accepted as our substitutionary atonement slain in our place, a sacrifice pleasing to God because of his purity. But we read that the old high priests had to first offer sacrifices for themselves. You'll find that in Leviticus 9, verse 7. Why? None of them were holy. None of them were harmless. None of them were undefiled. And certainly none of them were made higher than the heavens. He never had to offer and present an atonement for his sin. And so then there is this marvelous question. I don't know if you've ever thought on it yourself. Why 
did he offer himself if he did not have to offer anything for himself? You see, these are simple questions, perhaps, but they unlock an eternity of meditation. Is this not a marvelous question for the Christian to ponder? Have you ever pondered it? What would you say if the Lord asked, why did my son offer himself? Why did he give himself up for you, his people, who will believe on his name? He did it, the Bible says, out of love for you. Because you're, you are sinners, people of God. You are sinners. And what do we hear of sinners? Because your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. Isaiah 59, verse 2. Your sins have made you liable to the pains of death and hell forever. The wages of sin is death, eternal death. And yet at the same time, O oh God loves his people. The Son loves His people. The Spirit loves His people. And so this separation between you and God that would be fixed and eternal could never stand. So out of love, the Son of God was sent. And He comes out of love into the world to sacrifice Himself to reconcile you who believe to God. That all of God's holy anger and wrath against the sin of his people, could be taken up on the Son of God, forsaken on the cross, suffering the vengeance of God that you, his children, deserve. His sacrifice was for us, not for himself. And it was the supreme act of love. You don't need me to say it. You don't need me to come up with these things. He said it himself. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. John fifteen thirteen, And if you need two witnesses to this truth, if still the idea of the love of God being shown in Jesus Christ in his atonement is too much for you to believe, you have two witnesses. What did the apostle write? The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who what? Loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 All of you who believe have this most extravagant warrant and dare I say it, duty to say to the glory of God that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. When was the last time that you said such things to your God? Have you ever said such things? Have you ever admitted to God the Son of God loves me and gave himself for me? For me. There's no need for a sacrifice for himself, but he did it entirely for my sake and your sake who believe. And you say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, for all of his benefits, undeserved. And the apostle wants you to understand the efficacy of his sacrifice, which is once for all, that Christ's sacrifice was a perfect and all satisfying sacrifice to God. He says, Who needeth not daily, as those high priests to offer up sacrifices. Sacrifice. Those priests, you know, had to offer up daily sacrifices both for themselves and for the people. Numbers 28 verse 3 says, they are to offer sacrifices without spot day by day for a continual burnt offering. That's what the old priests had to do day by day under the ceremonial law. 
Because why would they have to do it day by day? Why would they have to do it continually, as the text says? Because those sacrifices could not really atone for sin. But they were pointing us to the Son of God. Eventually, to get to the point, none of these things actually take away. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. That is the idea and the impression you must learn from daily sacrifices. And a continuing theme throughout the book is that Jesus was, in contrast, a once-for-all sacrifice, which is why any scheme that introduces something like the Mass is anathema, because he is a once-for-all sufficient sacrifice. There is no further need for sacrifice after what he had done on the cross. And you might ask yourself, why? Why is it that Jesus' sacrifice is so much better and it can actually fully pay for the price of sin? Well, it's because of the worth and value of his person. He could atone for all his elect people. We have seen some qualities thus far of Jesus, but there is one further quality that is essential. Without his perfect humanity, uh, with, you know, without which his perfect humanity, as perfect as it is, is still incapable of atonement. And the quality that he possesses, an essential quality, is his divinity. Verse 28, For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the who? The Son who is consecrated forevermore. Now, that title for Jesus that is used in this verse, you might know this well, the Son. That is a title of his divinity, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. The efficacy of the Son of God's uh, sacrifice is efficacious because it was the sacrifice and the offering up of the divine person. This is why the Apostle Paul says, when we, we recited Galatians 2.20, that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. The divine person gave himself for me and loved me. Because even before Jesus in his humanity was born, the Son of God from eternity past loved me. And he comes to be incarnated in time and gives himself up for me. And this is the efficacy of the sacrifice of the Son of God, that it was uh, not the sacrifice of the divine nature, but it was the sacrifice of the divine person. He offers up his human nature, but we are glad to know that he counts the human nature as his own. And he says it is part, uh, he is both God and man, very God and very man. And so the divine person takes on humanity, and the sacrifice of the humanity is counted as the sacrifice of the divine person. Friends, this is an astonishment, isn't it? That we have what is in some ways counted as uh, the sacrifice of a divine person for us. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away your sin, but the blood of God, Acts twenty twenty seven, absolutely can, because it has infinite merit and value. You think about these things. This is why the Trinity is necessary for salvation. This is why the hypostatic union is necessary for salvation. All these deep truths of God are utterly necessary if we are to be saved. 
In this verse, as you know, the apostle, in this text, especially verse 28, the apostle hearkens back to the oath Jehovah made in Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, Jesus consecrated and set apart as a high priest forever. But what is very interesting is Psalm 110 is also in its first verse one of the proof texts for the divinity of the Son of God, isn't it? The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And so one, Psalm 110 verse 4, the apostle very well knows, uh, means that the high priest of the order of Melchizedek was divine. And so all of this fits together in our text. The Son of God is God-man with his human moral perfection, but also the divinity giving worth and efficacy to the sacrifice. Well, you know, we've set all of this before us right now, and we've gone really fast, really, even if it may not seem that way. But as Paul has set forth all of this perfection to the Hebrews in this simple, small text, he's setting that before you. The Holy Spirit is, really. And then he, he recalls the old ironic priests, high priests that have infirmity, compared and contrasted to Jesus. How could they even come close to matching him? All you have to do is think on the litany of high priests in the Bible, surely men of infirmity. From the very first one, Aaron. Boys and girls, you remember Aaron's foible. Makes a golden calf, breaking the second commandment straight away when, when Moses leaves to his sons, Nadab and Abihu, who gave God strange fire that he commanded them not, to Eli, and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, called sons of Belial, to the high priests that would even condemn our Lord Jesus Christ. The line of Aaron was full of infirmity, sinners. Think of why God records their faults so vividly in his Bible. To remind you that no mere sinful man could come close to saving you. You know, the Bible is a very honest book, boys and girls. There are no real true heroes in it, save one, that is Jesus. Why? Why is it so honest about even David's foibles and, and failings, uh, Aaron's, Moses's, so that you would cast all of your hopes on the perfect one, Jesus Christ only? Well, with sacrifices ended due to Christ's perfection, what does he want from you? Uh, this is a bit of application now. Let me be more specific. What does he want from you when you sin? You know, in the midst of the Levitical priesthood, with sacrifices going on in the tabernacle, David prophesied what we ought to bring to God. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. Why? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Even in the midst of those bulls and goats being offered day by day, every day, God enabled, the Holy Spirit enabled David to look beyond. And he said, bring to God a broken and contrite heart and not sacrifices. I will bring the sacrifice, as he told Abraham. I will provide the lamb, the lamb of God. But the offering that he will not despise from any of you, the offering that he desires of all of you, is your broken heart because he broke his son as a sacrifice. And if you believe on him, 
You need to know that Jesus has atoned for your sin, all of it paid in full. Your repentance and your faith never atones for your sin, which is what that young man that I witnessed to wanted so desperately to do. He said, I need, I need to forgive others so that God would accept that. You know, your forgiveness doesn't earn you anything in, in God's eyes when you forgive another. That is the fruit of saving faith, is to forgive others. It is all of Jesus, though, to save you. And repentance and faith are the means, we'll consider this in the next heading, by which the Holy Spirit applies the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses our conscience and us from all sin. So, friend, if you are here and you have never taken Jesus for salvation, you need to take hold of him as he is held forth in the scripture. Be broken over your sin. Have a contrite heart. Admit you are a sinner in need of divine mercy. Admit how grave and heinous your sin is, and then take refuge in Christ by faith in his perfection. And Jesus, our precious Jesus, will save you to the uttermost, as you're about to hear if you believe on him. And you can say that the Son of God has loved me and given himself for me. What a precious thought that the God of heaven would come down become my brother in the flesh to lay down his life for me, a sinner who has rebelled against him and done wickedly. You can say that. He has loved me and given himself for me, the God of heaven, if you are in Christ. So having considered Christ's perfect sacrifice, in our final heading, we consider the first half of the text, a perfect intercessor. Let us return to verses 23 and 24. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. We considered that last time. Because of the oath God had made to the Son, he would be a priest forever. Jesus Christ has a perpetual life and a perpetual office. Whereas the old priests ceased to be priests in their death and often before that. Each of them held their office for a finite number of days. But Jesus blessedly holds his office forever. Jesus Christ, when he was raised from the dead, he was raised to continue his work as our priest. His, his um, mediation for us did not end on the cross. He continues today in the very same office in the heavens. Uh, I want to dwell on the resurrection for a moment as we begin the exaltation of Christ there. The true physical resurrection of the Lord is a vital point of doctrine for us that we can never give up or else our salvation falls apart. The true physical resurrection of the Lord is vital. If you spiritualize the resurrection of the Lord away, as liberal Christians do, there is no salvation. A president of a liberal seminary was quoted in saying this, that the empty tomb symbolizes that the ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified and killed. Makes you want to wretch, really. If there is no literal bodily resurrection, there is no salvation. And we are lost for many reasons, really. But the Bible here says we need a living high priest that continues forevermore. This is why liberalism will actually lead you to self-righteousness. Because you can think that you're going to be nice and good to people, and that is going to be meritorious on the part of God. Or maybe that uh, even if uh, they even talk about the atonement, which they consider cosmic child abuse, uh, 
um, they would then say essentially something to the effect, well, he got you that far, and then after that, just be nice to everybody. No. We need a high priest that ever intercedes for us. We need a God-man mediator to save us from our sin. In contrast, we have the old high priesthood, the infirmity of priests who died and ceased, but the order of Melchizedek is forever and we need it. Jesus told us in John fourteen nineteen that because I live, ye shall live also. That's our hope, that he lives in the heavens today and he is in uh, before the throne of God in our nature. Um, and so we read these precious words in the 25th verse. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. See, if he didn't live, ever live to make intercession for us, we would not be saved to the uttermost. Now here, though, putting all the theology aside for a moment, which is necessary, here is a verse for an assurance of your salvation, believer. You need to mark it. You need to save it. You need to believe it. You need to meditate on it. You need to personalize it yourself that Jesus Christ is able to save me to the uttermost because I have come to God through him and he ever lives to make intercession for me. The implication, though, is that unless your priest ever lives to intercede for you, you cannot be saved. And you cannot be saved to the uttermost, which is why you need to mark this well, lest you stray from our Lord. Why do you need a priest that ever lives to intercede for you? Because you still sin day and night and night and day. That was, in effect, one of the reasons those sacrifices were offered daily. Because you sin not once a year. You sin daily. And daily those sacrifices must be offered. You sin by way of your thoughts. You sin by way of your affections. You sin with your eyes. You sin with your hands. You sin with your mouth. You sin in your sleep. And you sin when you are awake. And I do too. And when temptation comes, you need somebody who is ever there before God to uphold you before God. You need a constant flow of both mercy on one hand and grace as you found in Hebrews 4.16. So, and I've probably gone a little forward for that thought. Let's ask the question, let's double back. If the Lord's sacrificial and atoning work was finished on the cross, what is he doing as our high priest before God interceding for us? You know, it would be utterly wrong to say that his atonement was left unfinished, that there was some work he has to do before God in order to procure our salvation that he is now atoning for your sin at God's right hand. You must never say that, and you must never believe that. But there are generally in three broad categories, our catechism gives more fine detail, but I want to bring these three broad categories to you. He does in his intercession for us right now. And if you want to know what the catechism has to say, I I heard a young lady, Elizabeth, uh, recite what he is doing as our intercessor right now. You can ask her. First, Broadly speaking, he intercedes by applying his merits to us. 1 John 1, 7, B through 9. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, when you confess your sins and your faults before God, is that just going up into this empty, into this room and, and hitting the ceiling? No. Jesus Christ takes it. The Lord takes it and He cleanses us. He applies His blood to us. He is not shedding His blood afresh, but He applies by His Spirit His once for all sacrifice for us. And He also intercedes for us. Uh, Sometimes we think of His prophetic work as being the only work where He declares the will of God. But He also declares His will uh, to us as God, because the priests actually did declare the will of God in the Old Testament. Don't have time to get into that. But He intercedes in the way of declaring to us His mediation. He declares to you as priest, I am willing and I am able to forgive you. He intercedes right now in the preaching of the word out of this text. He is interceding for you by saying, will you not come to me, child of God, when you have need of me? Will you not come to me for a full assurance of your salvation and for a cleansing of all your sins? And he gives us then peace of conscience as we are uh, bringing our sins and faults to him. Second, he intercedes with a continual supply of grace for us. You remember that the throne in Hebrews 4 is called a throne of mercy and grace that we would find help in the time of need. That is Jesus Christ interceding for us by sending his Holy Spirit to give us grace in time of need. Right now in the preaching of the word, this ordinance, he is sending you grace to help in time of need if you would take it by faith. In two weeks, we will partake of the Lord's Supper, and He will intercede by sending to us grace by His Spirit if we partake by faith. He intercedes by giving us grace. Third, He prays for us to plead for us before God. Um, Strangely, and I don't have time to deal with this as a controversy, some deny that Jesus' intercession here has to do with prayer. As they think that prayer is a form of humiliation. And of course, his humiliation is ended. But that's not the case. Prayer is not humiliation. For instance, the angel of the Lord, who is the pre-incarnate Christ, prayed in Zechariah 1.12. The Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which thou hast had indignation these threescore and ten years? That is an intercessory prayer by the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, prefiguring what Jesus does in heaven, praying that the Lord would have mercy on us, that he would remove his indignation against us. And also he prays, because you need to know this as you seek to do the will of the Lord, he prays that our service to him would be accepted. You know, and if you've ever taught to serve the Lord, don't you often, if you're spiritually sensitive, say, I did something for the Lord, but I, I know my pride was in it. I know that I wanted other people to see how, how good I am, so-called, even as I sincerely thought to, to serve the Lord. There was a bit of selfishness. I did this good thing. I know that there is a part of me that wanted there to be some merit earned with the Lord. The best of our works are still polluted with sin and self and pride. And Jesus Christ, as the high priests of old did, in Hebrews 5.1, offers gifts as well as sacrifices, that our works, our gifts to God 
would be accepted by God. That's the only way anything you do for the sake of the Lord can be pleasing to God. Not because you are perfect in the work, but because Jesus Christ intercedes for you in the work. This is what ought to drive you to do the works of the Lord. Knowing that, yes, I fail, I stumble, I fall all the time. Even my best works are sinful and polluted. But Jesus Christ purifies as he intercedes for me. And for these three aspects of his continual priesthood, as Hebrews 9.24 says, he must appear in the presence of God for us. And appear in the presence of God, meaning he must appear bodily. Appearing not in an earthly temple, but the heavenly temple. And that will be the point of our next chapter. So I will not go there yet, but this is what he is doing in bodily, in his, in his human nature. For all of this, then, our text says, he is able to save to the uttermost. Because even our works, right, that we do for the sake of the Lord would damn us if he didn't intercede. He is able to save to the uttermost. His perfect atoning work on the cross is a continual intercession for us. When we look upon Jesus then, we are meant to say, how could I ever be lost? Nothing is contingent on me. Everything is on him. If Christ is mine, I have total and utter faith. I will persevere, not in myself, but in Christ as my security. And I know that his love did not die on the cross, but it ever lives for me before the throne of grace. Marvelous, marvelous thoughts arise out of the text. You know, sometimes you can look at the cross, and we are often guilty of this, and you say, yes, I see divine love and mercy there, but you can sometimes think it was ended then, but it has not. You forget that it continues now in the heavens. The same love that moved him to lay down his life the same love that arrested him on Calvary's cross continues now before the throne of God. So that every fault and every failing, every time we stumble and fall into sin, as Peter did and so many of us do, Jesus Christ is pleading, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And does, will God ever say no to Jesus? Never. And so you are saved to the uttermost. This is the great joy of those who come to God through Jesus Christ. I cannot be lost because Jesus is there out of love before the throne of God. Whatever my faults are, he will cover in full. Whatever my needs are for grace, he will deliver to me. And I can rest on the bed and say, Jesus Christ saves me to the uttermost because he ever lives to make intercession for me. And you must make full use of this intercessory work. When you sin... You must turn to him. You must turn to him. In temptation, right? In temptation to sin, you must go for a full supply of strength because he is there to give it to you. And when you feel unclean, when the devil accuses us, as we heard this morning, you, you mourn your sin, but you say, I will go to Jesus who is ever there to intercede for me. Make full use of the intercessory work of Jesus Christ. He saves to the uttermost. But I would be remiss if I did not remind you this is an exclusive love. This is an exclusive priest. He is not a priest for all, and our text stresses that point. There is a limited number of those who will be saved by him. He laid down his life for his sheep, a limited number, a vast number to be sure, a multitude no man can number. But he's not for everyone. 
verse 25 says his ministry is only for those that come unto God by him. You must remember those words. You can only come unto God through Jesus, friend. He is called the mediator. What does that mean? Sinners can only approach God through his work as mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. All of this work that you have heard of tonight is his work as our mediator to intercede for us. And friends, you must know that there is no possible way to God but through him. The text has stressed this. And you have to ask yourself, who else could do what Jesus does? No one. Not Aaron, not Moses, and most of all, not yourself. No one can do what Jesus has done or is doing. And he said in his exclusivity, I am the way and the truth and the life. Boys and girls, how does it go? No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Have you come to Jesus? Have you come to God by him? If you have, You can bless the Lord today. You are saved to the uttermost. Have you not come to him? You are condemned to the uttermost because your sins have separated you from God. But there is no need for your doom, friend. You just need to turn to Jesus like we have, we who believe have and live. He is a free gift. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Well, let's conclude with this thought, child of God. Because Jesus Christ, and I will say it again because you need to remember this, your high priest is perfect. You are saved and saved how far? How far are you saved? To the uttermost. That's a thought to hang eternity on. Jesus does not take you 50% of the way there and then say, well, the rest is up to you now. He does not even take you 99% of the way and then say just a little bit further, Uh, That's on you. He does not take you 99.9999999% of the way and say just that tiny bit. That's for you. Because even if 0.001% of salvation's effort was on me, I would be lost. Because I would botch it up and I would say with Peter, I am a sinful man, Lord. But Jesus saves 100% to the uttermost them that come to God through him. And for that reason, I can never be lost and I will persevere to the end. Yes, this is the high priest becoming us. This is the one we need. And praise the Lord that he is the one that has been given. Take him for yourself tonight and rejoice and ever bless his name. Amen. Let us leave Hebrews there for tonight. Let us rise for prayer if able. Our God and our Father, what a wonderful word this is, that Jesus Christ saves to the uttermost them that come to God by him. So, Father, we pray that there would not be a single solitary soul here who has not come to Jesus and who has not then come to God. And what a glorious thing it is to know that we who have come to Jesus, who have cast ourselves at the feet of the Son of God by faith, have come to you, Father. What a blessed thing that is to know that we are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ and that an eternity of heaven, of pleasures at your right hand, in the presence of God, joy evermore, 
is there because Jesus Christ intercedes for us and has not left us orphans. He has continued his great work of love applied in the heavens. O Father, even this prayer we know, it can only come to you because Jesus is there presenting it before you as our great high priest, as incense before God. So Father, receive our prayers, not for our sake, but for the sake of our anointed. Would you look on your beloved Jesus Christ and would you receive us through him and in his name. Amen.